Video shows people in Syria fleeing collapsed buildings. An earthquake centered in Turkey had a magnitude of 7.8, the region's worst in generations. Our correspondent felt it hundreds of miles away. I'm Steve Inskeep with A. Martinez, and this is Up First from NPR News. President Biden hasn't quite said that he plans to run for a second term, but if he goes ahead, his State of the Union address would likely signal the themes of his campaign. How will the president address a divided Congress this week? She's been called Sasha Fierce and, of course, Queen B. Now Beyonce reigns over the Grammys. Earth's only alien superstar won her 32nd Grammy last night. No other artist has more. So why does her beehive say she was robbed? Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your day. Support for NPR and the following message come from USA Facts. USA Facts State of the Union in Numbers has data behind U.S. trends in healthcare, inflation, crime, and more. See the numbers at usafacts.org. The earthquake that hit southeast Turkey last night had a magnitude of 7.8. It struck while many were sleeping, and the devastation spread to nearby Syria. Video showed people running in darkness and rain surrounded by flattened buildings. Now that it's daylight in the Middle East, authorities say at least 640 people have died. Rescue workers say they're only just starting to understand the scale of the destruction. NPR's Ruth Sherlock joins us now from Lebanon. Ruth, did you feel the earthquake where you are? Hi, I did. It was about 3.20 my time and I woke up because our whole building was swaying. So my husband and I grabbed our children and ran outside. Of course, you know, we were fine, but then I started hearing just how bad this is in Turkey and in Syria. So the epicenter of this earthquake was just north of Gaziantep. That's a provincial capital in Turkey with a population of about 2 million people. And A, to put this into perspective for you, the earthquake was so strong that there are reports of buildings collapsed in an area that spans 200 miles around the epicenter. In Gaziantep, I'm told there's extensive damage in older parts of the city. And then residential buildings have also collapsed in Adana, in Diyarbakir and other parts of Turkey. And in these places, people were trying to escape in their cars, but that jammed the roads and just made it harder for emergency services to reach the wounded. And then to make all this worse, there's a snowstorm in the region at the moment. So people are running outside in the freezing cold. Mosques have been opened as shelters for those that can't go home. Okay, that's Turkey. What about Syria? Well, the Syrian government says there's been widespread destruction across Aleppo, Hama and Latakia provinces. And the earthquakes also devastated parts of the country that have been taken by the opposition in the civil war that's still going on there. We reached Raid Saleh. He's the head of the White Helmets, a civil defense group that works in these areas. He says, truthfully, the situation is disastrous. And he gave us a long list of names and towns and villages. And he says, in all these areas, buildings have fallen to the ground. Families are trapped under the rubble. Videos I've seen from this part of northern Syria show a whole street essentially flattened. And as I mentioned, all of this in in northern Syria is coming after a decade of war. Lots of people in this part of the country have fled fighting from other areas. And the UN says of the some 4 million people there now, about 3 million can't easily source food. And that was before this earthquake. So it definitely sounds like a lot of people need help really fast. How are rescue operations going? 
Well, you know, what's clear is that rescue operations are going to take time because there is such widespread damage in both these countries. But obviously, time is critical and the weather isn't helping. Uh, in addition to Turkish and Syrian rescue efforts, President Biden has asked the USAID and other aid groups to assess how they can help in the worst hit areas. Turkey says in an initial assessment, more than 1,700 buildings have collapsed. In northern Syria, aid efforts are hampered by the fact that four hospitals have had to be evacuated because of the damage. I'm told the rest are totally overwhelmed. And you know, hospitals in this region have been repeatedly hit by airstrikes by the Syrian regime and its ally Russia. That drove aid groups to set up clinics underground. That was a protection against airstrikes, but has only complicated matters uh, in dealing with this earthquake. One Syrian aid worker I spoke with who operates in these areas says, you know, this is literally the last thing that Syrians need. NPR's Ruth Sherlock in Lebanon. Ruth, thank you. Thank you. The last time President Biden addressed Congress, his party controlled both the House and Senate. Democrats had the power to pass much of his agenda. When the president delivers his annual State of the Union speech this week, he'll face a divided Congress. Republicans narrowly control the House after the midterm elections. That new reality will shape his speech, the months that follow, and his widely expected bid for a second term. Joining us now is NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Asma, the president has said he intends to run again. Now, this seems like a place to make it unofficially official. I mean, sort of. I mean, I do want to be very clear. He has not yet declared he's running for re-election, but it, it is his intention, he has said. And he certainly won't officially announce anything in a State of the Union speech, but he spoke to a range of former Republican and Democratic speechmakers for this story. And what they told me is that this speech could really lay out the broad contours of a re-election campaign. And they say it is a chance for Biden to deal with any lingering questions people might have about his candidacy. Uh, this is something that former President Bill Clinton did, for example, in his 1995 speech. Um, it came after Republicans took control of Congress. And I was told that he needed to show, you know, he was still standing, could roll with the punches. Uh, one of his speechwriters, Michael Wallman, told me that Bill Clinton was able to use the State of the Union that year as a real political opportunity. Clinton used the State of the Union addresses when he was in political peril, when he had lost control of the House and Senate, and it really was a rebuke of him, and when people thought he was politically a goner. But he drew the contrasts with the Republicans. He reminded people of what they liked about his policies and about him. No, eight. to be very clear, I mean, the question Biden needs to answer is very different from the one Clinton did. Biden did not face a midterm shellacking. But three different speechwriters I interviewed, Republican and Democrat, said the key issue for Biden is his age. He would be 86 at the end of a second term were he to run. And so uh, even Michael Waldman, who wrote speeches for Clinton, told me part of what Biden needs to do tomorrow night is show he's vigorous and commanding. And the political backdrop is different this year, actually literally different because Kevin McCarthy mm-hmm. McCarthy is sitting behind him instead of Nancy Pelosi. So how might Biden work that in? I mean, it is an opportunity to draw a contrast. You know, these speeches are about laying out your party's agenda, uh, and that sometimes means painting the opposition in a less flattering light. I spoke to a former George W. Bush speechwriter. His name is Peter Weiner. He told me that is a real delicate balance to strike. That's tricky to do, precisely because you're speaking to an audience that includes the opposition party as well as your own. And you don't want to, as a president, come across as petty. Um, or divisive. I mean, it is worth noting here that this is likely to be Biden's biggest television audience of the year. And so some Democrats tell me Biden really needs to convince people what is at stake for the nation. 
Is anything he's been doing or saying lately something we might hear about? You know, I think we've been getting a bit of a preview in some of his recent remarks. You've heard him take a victory lap on the economy. You've heard him uh, visit and seen him visit a number of bridges and tunnels touting his legislative accomplishments. The White House told me that he will underscore the progress the country has made during a challenging period in history. He also plans to address some key foreign policy issues, such as the war in Ukraine. You know, ultimately, I will say this is an opportunity for him to talk about what he also still wants to do, even if those things don't have any likelihood of getting passed with this Republican House because it's, it helps, you know, create this contrast again. And, and that's what speechmakers told me the president needs to do tomorrow night. That's NPR's Asma Hala. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. The State of the Union address is Tuesday night. Now, we always bring you live special coverage of the speech, but this year we're going to give you something extra. Alongside our usual broadcast in English, we're going to give you a second program in Spanish and English. You can listen to me, A. Martinez, for that bilingual broadcast with the same in-depth analysis and focus on topics that are important to you. Listen to NPR's special coverage of the 2023 State of the Union address from NPR News. Check with your member station for details and at NPR.org. History was made at the Grammy Awards last night. Beyonce added four more trophies to her collection, bringing her to a record-breaking 32. She won the extra four for her album Renaissance, but did not win the most prestigious award, Album of the Year. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco is here to explain what happened. Uh, Let's start, Mandalit, with Beyonce. What happened? Yeah, well, with Renaissance, Beyonce is now the Recording Academy's GOAT, the greatest of all time. I'd like to thank the queer community for your love and for inventing this genre. God bless you. Thank you so much to the Grammys. Thank you. But, you know, the night was bittersweet for Beyonce. She didn't win any of the big awards, record, album, or song of the year. And Beyonce fans will tell you that the Grammys have perpetually snubbed her even as she's racked up these smaller awards. So who did get those awards? Well, Adele's Easy On Me won for Best Pop Solo Performance, and Album of the Year went to Harry Styles for Harry's House. And everything gets in the way. And Record of the Year went to Lizzo for About Damn Time. She dedicated her Grammy to Prince, and she gave a shout-out to Beyonce. It's almost like Harry Styles lives in my car, (laughs) as often (laughs) as I've heard that song. So what were the biggest surprises? Well, Song of the Year, which most people had expected to go to Adele or Beyonce or even Taylor Swift, instead it went to Bonnie Raitt, and that was for a song she wrote inspired by the late singer John Prine. She looked totally flabbergasted, standing with her mouth open for the longest time before she accepted her Songwriter Award. The Best New Artist went to 23-year-old jazz vocalist Samara Joy and Jay Ivey, who I profiled for NPR. He won the Best Spoken Word Poetry Album Grammy, the first ever. Uh, And actress Viola Davis, she won for the audiobook of her memoir. And so she's now an EGOT, winning an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Now, the live performances at the Grammys are usually stuff that everyone talks about the next day. So any standouts this year? Yes, there were. Um, The Grammys are celebrating 50 years of hip-hop this year, a global phenomenon that started when DJ Cool Herc was breaking beats on Central Avenue in the Bronx. LL Cool J introduced producer Andre Young, known as Dr. Dre. He inaugurated the Grammy's new Dr. Dre Global Impact Award, and he accepted the honor by honoring pioneers of hip-hop. It started with a song called The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. 
Yeah. Scratching and mixing on the turntable. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. Grandmaster Flash himself took the stage with Run DMC, Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, Salt and Pepper, Buster Rhymes, all these OG hip hop heads and newer ones. For those of us who grew up in the earlier days of New York hip hop, it was such a nostalgic treat seeing them rocking the mic with MCs scratching the turntables with B-boys dancing, the track suits, the suitcase size boom boxes. You know, back in the day, the Grammys didn't respect hip hop. So this felt like a, a real moment, you know? Yeah, it only took 40 years. That's NPR culture correspondent, Mandarita Barco. Yeah, 50, <laughs> Mandarita Barco, thanks. Sure. <laughs> And that's Up First for Monday, February 6th. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Up First is produced by Julie Deppenbrock and David West. Our editors are Amra Pasich and Ali Schweitzer, and our technical director is Zach Coleman. Join us here tomorrow. And thanks for listening to Up First. You can find more in-depth coverage of all the stories we talked about today and a lot more on NPR's Morning Edition. That's the radio show that I host along with Steve Inskeep and Leila Fadel. Find Morning Edition and your NPR station at stations.npr.org.